Welcome to Between the Lines, presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. I'm Scott Harris. This week we present Dr. Dana Elborno, a Palestinian-American OBGYN physician practicing in Illinois, who shares the horror her family members and 2.3 million Gaza residents face each day in Israel's unrelenting brutal war. Christopher Pearson of the group National Popular Vote, who discusses the campaign to bypass the electoral college system to elect U.S. presidents in favor of determining the winner based on who receives the most votes in all 50 states. And Rodney Moore, Phil Kent, and Helen Caraballo, who talk about the grassroots effort to pass clean slate legislation in Connecticut that seals the criminal records of people convicted of misdemeanors and some felonies. But first, we begin with a summary of some of the week's underreported news stories. In a dramatic end-of-year diplomatic move, the U.S. and Venezuela engaged in a high-profile prisoner exchange. Venezuelan President Nicolas Maduro released 10 Americans who had been detained in the country on various charges, including two accused of participating in a failed coup to overthrow the Caracas government in exchange for America's release of Alex Saab, a close Maduro business associate. Maduro also freed 20 Venezuelan political prisoners and handed over into U.S. custody a fugitive defense contractor, Leonard Glenn Francis, also known as Fat Leonard, who is at the center of a $35 million Pentagon bribery scandal. The prisoner swap was part of a broader thaw in relations between Washington and Caracas, recognizing that the U.S.-led strategy of isolation and severe economic sanctions had failed to weaken Maduro's hold on power. Trump administration sanctions imposed on Venezuela's oil sector ravaged the country's economy, causing some 7 million people to leave, many who are now seeking entry at the U.S. southern border. In October, Maduro pledged to work toward holding free elections in 2024. Days later, the Biden administration announced the suspension of some sanctions on Venezuela's oil, gas, and gold sectors. Colombia's president, Gustavo Petro, and Brazil's president, Luis Inácio Lula da Silva, played a leading role in negotiations. In northern Ontario, a dramatic disparity in the quality of life exists between white Canadians and indigenous First Nations people. In Terence Bay, a paper mill provided jobs with well-furnished homes, but just 25 miles away in Pei Platte, the indigenous community suffers from extreme poverty where people have lived for many years in tar paper shacks without electricity or running water. According to The Guardian, there is a long legacy of poverty, drug abuse, and mental illness in Pei Platte. More than 170 years after the Robinson Superior Treaty was signed with the British Crown promising that First Nations communities could share in the region's riches, the indigenous people have been struggling with illness, poverty, and housing shortages, an enduring legacy of the colonial project 
first envisioned by the British government and continued after Canada gained independence. In 1998, chiefs of the affected communities sued the province of Ontario, arguing it had broken its promise to share the wealth of the land, and two decades later, a judge agreed with them. The Twelve Nations Party to the Treaty argued they are owed as much as $126 billion Canadian dollars. But as Ontario resists these claims, people of the First Nations view the decades-long legal battle as a symbol of almost two centuries of broken promises. A Texas promoter has a multi-billion dollar plan to drill thousands of gas wells in New York State's southern tier to store carbon dioxide and extract methane gas from the Marcellus and Utica Shale formations. Bryce Phillips is trying to convince landowners to sign a lease allowing his Southern Tier Solutions Company to drill wells on their land for a flat $10 and the prospect of future payouts. Barnraiser Media reports that the scheme takes advantage of a new federal tax credit offered to companies that use drilling technology to store carbon dioxide and extract methane. Fracking with carbon dioxide as opposed to water is a new regulatory issue that New York State's Department of Environmental Conservation will need to examine and decide whether or not to permit. Sandra Steingraber, a key advocate for New York's 2014 ban on fracking, argues that carbon capture functions as a fossil fuel subsidy entrenches fossil fuel demand and captures far less carbon dioxide than claimed. Alex Boucham, the regional director of Food and Water Watch, asserts the corporation's proposal to use proven-to-fail carbon capture technology to skirt state regulation is absurd and dangerous for our climate and communities. This week's news summary was compiled by Bob Nixon. For Between the Lines, I'm Anna Manzo. As the world marked the end of 2023 and the beginning of a new year, Israel's ground and air war in Gaza entered its 13th week since the October 7th Hamas terrorist attack that killed 1,200 Israeli men, women, and children. Gaza's health ministry reports that since the start of the war, more than 22,000 Palestinians have been killed, with about 70% of those killed, women and children. Over 57,000 Palestinians have reportedly been injured, with little or no medical care available. The United Nations Relief and Works Agency for Palestinian Refugees, or UNRWA, says that over 85% of Gaza's population have been displaced, some multiple times. Families are forced to move repeatedly in search of safety, with food, clean water, and medical supplies scarce or inaccessible. At least 142 members of UNRWA's Gaza staff and 69 journalists have been killed in the conflict thus far. Despite growing international calls for a ceasefire, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu says his military continues to pursue the destruction of Hamas, asserting that the war will continue for many more months. Your reporter spoke with Dr. Dana Alborno, 
an OBGYN pediatric and adolescent physician practicing in Illinois. Here, Dr. Alborno, a Palestinian-American with many family members now living in Gaza, talks about the horror 2.3 million residents there face daily in Israel's unrelenting, brutal war. This is not the story that we wish to be telling about ourselves. We're a proud people. We're a dignified people. Before all of this started, they had homes, they had jobs, they had families that they were raising, and kids that were aspiring to also achieve high levels of education and had a lot of dreams for themselves. I do not wish to be talking about the undignified circumstances that my family is living in. I do not wish to be talking about them starving or living in crowded facilities where they're sick, where they're hungry, where they have one bathroom for upwards of 700 people, where they have no access or reliable access to water. These are not things that we talk about easily. We talk about them because we're hoping to affect change, not because we're asking for a handout. We are talking about them because this is expressly the result of American-funded Israeli policies and things that are out of our hands. These are conditions that have been forced on us, not something that is related to decisions that we made or any agency that we had. It's very difficult to share these stories when you're talking about your own family. The things that I'm talking about or will say, they're happening to my family, but they're happening to all Palestinians in Gaza. So this is just a lens or an insight into a circumstance of what everyday people are facing and not as some sort of an exceptional tale of the way that this has affected me uniquely. The scale right now is that the 2 million Palestinians who live in Gaza, and many of them are refugees, the majority are refugees who were forcibly displaced in the late 40s when Israel was arbitrarily created on top of Palestinian lands as a Jewish-only state, where the majority of the people who live there on those lands were not Jewish. So to create a Jewish majority there, a lot of innocent Palestinians were killed and forcibly displaced in what was known as the Nakba of 48. And what we're seeing today is an ongoing and a continuation of the Nakba with the killing of innocent civilians and their forcible displacement. You just recounted the number of deaths that we've seen of Palestinians in Gaza in the past couple of months. On top of that, we have tens of thousands of Palestinians who are wounded, and we know that half of those victims are children. We also know that 70,000 women in Gaza right now are pregnant. We know that 7,000 of them are due to deliver sometime in the next month, about 200 each day. We know that Israel's assault on Gaza has not only attacked residential facilities, as you've described, causing the forcible displacement of the majority of Palestinians, but it has also attacked the water desalination plants, the sewage systems, the bakeries, the schools, the universities, the healthcare systems. In short, it has affected every aspect of Palestinian life, leaving 2 million people to ask the question, where should we go? Where is it safe to stand? There is not one millimeter of Gaza that is safe to stand. And my father-in-law tells me if there was one millimeter that was safe to stand in, it would be stacked with two million people high. Every time they have been told that they are being displaced for safety, they have been bombarded in the exact places that they have been told to flee. So on top of bombardment, they are also homeless. Uh, and that is a circumstance that is affecting millions of Palestinians in Gaza. 
they are being forced into overcrowded conditions without any sanitation capabilities, without any food or water to adequately supply the millions of people who have been displaced. And it's leaving people really feeling ultimately forgotten. They are trapped civilian population that is being bombarded and starved, and there is no way out. So the scale of this catastrophe, in short, it is beyond imagination and beyond description. That was Dr. Dana Alborno, a Palestinian-American OBGYN pediatric and adolescent physician practicing in Illinois. Find a link to her article titled, U.S. Palestinians Feel Helpless as Our Tax Dollars Fund Our Family's Destruction and Related Commentary by visiting our Between the Lines website at btl online.org. As the 2024 U.S. presidential election draws near, there's renewed attention on America's undemocratic electoral college system that elected both Donald Trump president in 2016 and George W. Bush in 2000, despite the fact that both these Republican Party candidates lost the national popular vote. A mid-November survey by the Stack Data Strategy polling firm, added to concern on this issue when it found that if an election had been held in the fall of 2023, Trump would again win the Electoral College in the presidency, while President Joe Biden would win the national popular vote by two million ballots, repeating what happened in 2016 and 2000. A separate poll conducted by the Pew Research Center found 65% of U.S. adults say the way the president is elected should be changed so that the winner of the popular vote nationwide wins the presidency. Only a third favored keeping the current electoral college system. To that end, the group National Popular Vote has waged a campaign that calls for all of a state's electoral votes to be awarded to the presidential candidate who wins the most popular votes nationwide. The Interstate Compact, as it's called, will take effect once states with a collective total of 270 electoral votes join. To date, the compact has passed in 16 states in Washington, D.C., totaling 205 electoral votes, needing 65 more electoral votes to go into effect. Your reporter spoke with Christopher Pearson, board secretary with the group National Popular Vote, and a former longtime Vermont state legislator. Here he discusses the status of the campaign to ditch the electoral college system to elect U.S. presidents. So we are unique in the in the advanced world for having an electoral college, for electing the second place candidate, which happened now twice in our lifetime, five times in, in the country's history. We've only had 46 presidents, so that's a pretty bad error rate, five out of 46. And to frankly have in a democratic election, to have a system that doesn't treat every vote equally, um, there, there really is something to the principle one person, one vote. But our effort, national popular vote, is once again asking states to use the Electoral College differently and just ratify the candidate that gets the most votes in the country. And we're well on the way to doing that need to pass this bill in a handful more states, at which point we'll still have the Electoral College because states can't eliminate it, but uh, it will just be a rubber stamp for whichever candidate gets the most votes in the country. And along the way, we make every vote equal, uh, one person, one vote. 
And we make every voter matter in every state in every election. That's a big one. And finally, we just guarantee you get the most votes in the country. You go to the White House. As I understand it, Chris, only 65 more electoral votes are needed to implement the national uh, the national popular vote interstate compact. Is there any chance that's going to happen before the 2024 election? Uh, probably not. Uh, but but we do think 2024 could be the last election where we do it under this current system. Uh, so we're 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 aiming at 2028 um, being the first election where the president uh, campaigns in all 50 states and talks to voters everywhere and and is is guaranteed to be the candidate that gets the most votes. Uh, so not quite in time for a year from now, but. Um, but hopefully this is the last one that we're, we're about to see. And, you know, a lot of people are motivated for different reasons to, to support national popular vote. But one of them is that we do seem to routinely be looking at the possibility of electing the second place candidate. There's a lot of polls coming out now looking at telling us that Donald Trump could win reelection. In none of those polls does he have, get the most votes in the country. So, you know, for a lot of people, that's that's just not right. No matter what you think of Biden or Trump or, or any of them, you know, there is something strange about about rewarding the second place candidate with the White House. And um, so so it's a very relevant topic. But unfortunately, we're, we're not likely to get enough states on board in the next six months. Right. Uh, but we are working hard. And, and I think 2024 could be our last election under the system as we know it today. Well, Chris, I did want to ask you a generally about the erosion of democracy with the loser of the presidential election losing the popular vote in both 2000 and 2016. It certainly brings home why the popular vote matters so much. I mean, we have presidents who've been elected through the Electoral College who nominate Supreme Court justices as... That's right. A majority of them right now, five out of nine, came uh, to be Supreme Court justices, I guess the second place president. Nominated so, by yeah. presidents who weren't elected by the popular vote, right? And yeah. certainly countless federal policies impacting the economy, foreign policy, the environment, immigration, minimum wage, health care and education. All these things are impacted by the president, the one who sits in the Oval Office. If you have presidents in the Oval Office who weren't elected by a majority of the country, you have a system of minority rule, which is mm -hmm. antithetical to democracy. So this, right. this really counts for a lot. And one question I, I know you deal with a lot at uh, National Popular Vote is concern that when the requisite number of states pass the National Popular Vote Interstate Compact, that this will be challenged before the U.S. Supreme Court. So my final yeah. question for you tonight is, what is your level of confidence that when the states required vote in the, the National Popular Vote Interstate Compact, that it will be deemed by the Supreme Court as constitutional? I'm fairly confident that they'll back us up because national popular vote relies on what the court previously has called the plenary power of the state legislatures. Uh, and the Constitution itself is doesn't say a lot about how we elect the president, but it is very clear that it hands the whole operation to the states. Article 2, Section 1 says each state shall appoint in such manner as the legislature thereof may direct a number of electors. So. So it's it's kind of just in the hands of state legislatures. And 
there is no parameters on that. So there's nothing to say that the Vermont legislature, where I had the pleasure of serving, can't say our three electors will go to the candidate that gets the most votes in the country. That was Christopher Pearson, board secretary with the group National Popular Vote and a former longtime Vermont state legislator. Learn more about the National Popular Vote campaign by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. Connecticut is one of 12 states in the U.S. to have passed some form of clean slate legislation, which seals the criminal records of people convicted of misdemeanors and some felonies, whether or not they ever served time in prison. Connecticut's bill was signed into law by Governor Ned Lamont in 2021, but faced technical problems in implementation, which delayed its taking effect for a year. The group leading the effort to pass the clean slate law was Connect, congregations organized for a new Connecticut, representing 39 faith communities, using their collective voice to demand change on social, economic, and political issues affecting the state's families and communities. The governor and other elected officials joined leaders of the grassroots effort to pass the law at a December 18th press conference, celebrating the Clean Slate Law's implementation effective on January 1st. Between the Lines' Melinda Tuhus covered the press conference and presents excerpts of comments from three of the speakers. We hear first from Rodney Moore, who works for Healthy Start, a program that supports fathers, many of whom were previously incarcerated. Now, Clean Slate is an opportunity for tens of thousands of people right here in Connecticut to be released from second-class status for convictions which they have long since paid their debt. With Clean Slate, Connecticut can be a model for states across the country for how we can begin to end the continuing harm of mass incarceration, which has been particularly devastating to black and brown communities here and across the country. Clean Slate is good for families, and it's good for the fathers that I work with every day who are part of New Haven Healthy Start's Fatherhood Initiative and just want to get their life back on track to support their families. And it's good for our communities that can regain some wholeness and benefit from new opportunities opened by the implementation of Clean Slate. The numbers you will see later on this chalkboard up here represent tens of thousands of people within Connecticut who will have their records automatically erased starting in January. That was Rodney Moore, one of the tri-chairs of Connect's criminal reform team. Next up is Phil Kent, another of the tri-chairs and a member of Congregation Mishkan Israel, a member congregation of Connect. Clean Slate started in Connecticut in 2018 with house meetings in our communities and our congregations, some in this very church. We asked people to share their stories about what needs to change to make Connecticut better, and they inspired us. When we learned Clean Slate had passed in Pennsylvania, but only for misdemeanors, we went to work to bring Clean Slate to life in Connecticut and improve it. We met with legislators across the board, professors, legal professionals, 
people with lived experience in the system, victims advocacy groups, and numerous allies, many of whom are on the thank you list uh, that we are displaying today. We owe a debt of gratitude to the people with the strength to talk about life in the shadow of a criminal record. Connecticut, which just the fourth state to adopt Clean Slate when it passed in 2021, now 12 states have Clean Slate laws, including New York just recently, and bringing new inspiration, Pennsylvania just passed its third update to Clean Slate last week to now include sealing of felony records. Clean Slate builds a positive feedback loop. It's good for individuals and their families who will get better jobs, more stable housing, and more higher education opportunities. This is good for business and our economy, which greatly needs more workers. And it's good for governance that reduces recidivism and makes our legal system smarter, more efficient, and more humane. That was Phil Kent, one of the tri-chairs of Connect's criminal reform team. Next up is Helen Caraballo, one of the tens of thousands of Connecticut residents who will benefit from Clean Slate implementation by having her criminal record sealed. Twelve years ago, after surrounding myself with the wrong crowd, I was arrested and charged with a felony. Eventually, I pled guilty to a felony drug conspiracy, and the judge sentenced me to a suspended sentence. But since then, I have been serving another sentence, not the one that the judge imposed, but one that has been very real with employers, landlords, schools, and professions that have judged me ever since. Despite these never-ending judgments, I moved forward and continue to strive to be better. I went back to school and recently became a CNA and I'm licensed as a certified nursing assistant. I was given an opportunity by Yale Hospital and now work in one of the intensive care units. I have five wonderful children and I'm very active in their school and I'm also very active in my parish as well. I've worked very hard to rebuild my life. Just this past March, I recently experienced an issue with the job because of my record. They love me so much, and I went through three rounds of interviews in one afternoon. I told them about my record, and they assured me that it was so long ago that they wouldn't even take it into consideration. I got so excited, but after running my background and doing my fingerprints, I never heard from them ever again. This has been the best Christmas present that I could have ever gotten. That was Helen Caraballo, whose criminal record will be sealed under Connecticut's new Clean Slate Law, making it easier for her to secure employment. She was preceded by Phil Kent, a member of Congregation Michigan Israel in Hamden, Connecticut, and Rodney Moore, a community advocate with New Haven Healthy Start. Learn more about Connecticut's new Clean Slate Law by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. You've been listening to Between the Lines, a weekly program presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. Between the Lines is produced and distributed by Squeaky Wheel Productions. 
If you have suggestions for topics and guests, please contact Between the Lines through our website at btlonline.org, where you can hear our current and archived programs and streaming audio and support our show. There you can also subscribe to free weekly podcasts, program summaries, and interview transcripts. Follow us on Facebook at Between the Lines Radio News Magazine and on Twitter at BTL Radio News. Thanks for listening on WZBC in Newton, Massachusetts, WRFN in Nashville, Tennessee, FRSC in Santa Cruz, California, dozens of other community radio stations across the U.S. and abroad, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Our theme music was written by Richard Hill and performed by Mikata. This week's program was produced by Susan Bramhall, Mary Hunt, Anna Manzo, Bob Nixon, Melinda Tuhus, and Jeff Yates. For Between the Lines, I'm Scott Harris.